question that anyone could ever ask and anyone could answer. Who is Jesus? There's lots of opinions. And if you've been watching History Channel and documentaries, uh, you've gotten all kinds of perspective from scholars and so-called scholars and, and different things. And so this morning, I thought on Easter, why don't we just get together and open up the word of God and answer from the scriptures? Who is Jesus? Now, before we get there, I've got a uh, I've always heard advice when I was a young Young pastor, and I'm older, I guess now, but I was really young and I first started preaching is, uh, hey, listen, to the best of your knowledge, don't go into the pulpit with any unconfessed sin. Go into the pulpit with a clean heart so you can speak with God's power and God's authority because uh, sin will clog that up. And so I just want to start off with a little confession this morning. Um, at my house, the greatest sin that you can commit on Easter is this. You don't match your family with your clothes. And so I just want to stand before you, a forgiven sinner. I don't match my family this morning. My wife said, you better confess that. Before all the people at Liberty Heights Church, the color scheme this year was uh, raspberry and tangerine. And unfortunately for my wife, my tangerine pants were still at the cleaners. And so I just want to confess that this morning before we get started. All right. So now that the air is clear and I feel good and me and God are good, uh, I'm just going to go with the message this morning. After a long and distinguished career. Larry King retired several years ago. And one of his final programs, he was actually being interviewed by Donald Trump. And one of the questions that was posed to him was this. If you could interview anyone in the world, who would it be? Now, that's a fascinating question. Because Larry King has interviewed just about anyone who's anyone, right? I mean, cultural icons, political icons, Hollywood icons, you name it. Larry King has sat across from them in his desk and asked them some hard questions. And so what a fascinating question to ask Larry King. Who would you interview if you could have one interview? Who would it be and exactly who would that be? Now, that's an interesting question, but the answer is even more fascinating because Larry King paused briefly. And then he said this. He said, I would interview Jesus. He said, I would interview Jesus and I would ask him if he truly was virgin born, because if he were, that would define all of history for me. Isn't that fascinating? And so the reality is this morning that for every person in here, depending on how we answer that question of who Jesus is, guess what? It's the one question that defines history for all of us this morning, whether we recognize it or not. Answering that question in our own lives of who is Jesus is the most life defining question you can ask as a person this morning. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, my guess is that you've got some questions about Jesus. I mean, is he, was he the son of God or did people describe him? Did he say that of himself? Was he a great teacher? Was he a good leader? Exactly who was Jesus and what's all the hype about? Well, I got good news this morning. I'm not going to answer every question in the next 30 minutes, uh, but I'm going to walk you through a passage of Scripture that basically gives you everything you need to know to begin a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And some of you, many of you here have crossed that line of faith. You've transferred your trust uh, in Jesus Christ. And so you, you're a believer, you're a follower, however you would describe that. Uh, but you don't feel really confident in articulating your faith. And if someone got into a debate or said, why do you believe what you believe? Or what does the Bible really teach about Jesus? And you say, I'm not sure I can articulate that. Then guess what? The passage we're going to walk through today is the most important passage in the entire New Testament in answering the question, who is Jesus? And so if you're here and you're not a Christ follower or you're here and you're a Christ follower, uh, the question is this, is this a really, if not the most important passage in all of the scriptures about Jesus? And the answer to that question is 
Yepers. And if you're taking notes, that's two P's. Okay, it's that big of a deal. It's a huge passage of scripture. And so if someone came to me and said, hey, listen, you've got you got a few minutes. Uh, tell me who Jesus was. Show me from the Bible. I don't care about your opinion, Brad. You open up the scriptures and you explain to me who Jesus Christ is. This is the passage of scripture that I would take them to. So if you have a Bible, you can turn this morning to Colossians chapter one. We're going to look at verses 15 through 20 this morning uh, in a message titled, Who is Jesus? If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'll put those verses up there on the screen so that you can follow along and see that we're teaching straight from the scripture. Now, let me just give you a little context. Apostle Paul is writing, he's writing to a church at Colossae, and it's a real local church back in that day. And he's addressing some some things they got gotten off course about who Jesus was and what, you know, what he thought and all those things. So Paul is kind of writing a corrective uh, letter here. And one of the things this people believed, they believed that the path to God was elusive. And so they took all these different religions, uh, Jewish legalism and mysticism, and all these things, and they just kind of combined them into one kind of lump sum religion called Gnosticism. And so they thought that the path to God was elusive and they alone possessed this secret knowledge of access to God. Paul said, no, I'm not having it. It's a lot simpler than that. And then also they taught this, that Paul's correct. They also taught uh, that, that while God is perfect, physical matter was evil. And so God could have never took on the flesh and the person of Jesus Christ, because if he did, then God himself would have embraced evilness. And God, God can't do that. And so, so there's no way that Jesus Christ could be God in the flesh because all physical matter is evil. So Paul's writing to address some of those uh, false assumptions and false beliefs about who Jesus is. And so setting the record straight. So if you're here this morning and you want to find out for sure, say, hey, take me to one place. Tell me who Jesus Christ is, not your opinion, not your denominational position. Tell me from the scriptures who Jesus is. This is the passage. All right. Colossians chapter one, beginning in verse 15. It says he referencing Jesus he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things consist. Verse 18 says he is the head of the body, which is a way to illustrate the church. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. This is this incredible passage. There's so much truth packed in just a few short verses here. And so in defining and walking through this passage and answering the question from the scriptures about who Jesus is, Paul lays it out there first and foremost, the, the crowning statement about who Jesus is when he describes Jesus as the eternal God. He doesn't give any options. He doesn't say moral teacher, doesn't say example. He doesn't say uh, you know influential person in history. He lays and builds the case as the eternal God. Now, you may not believe the Bible is divine origin. You may say, I think it's a book written by men. That's a whole different sermon, a whole different conversation. But you cannot with integrity examine and, and come to the conclusion that the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus was God in the flesh. Let me unpack these verses for you and walk right through these verses and explain to you what exactly it's describing Jesus here uh, in a little more detail. Look at verse 15 again, Colossians chapter one. 
He starts off describing and answering the question, correcting him about who Jesus is when he says this. He says he is the image of the invisible God. Now, that word image there uh, in our English connotation has a little different mindset, doesn't it? Image is something that we project. Image is something that we may not really be, but we want other people to think we are. Image is something we build. Image is something we market. Image is something that we try to create where we look a little more favorable than what we really might be. And so an image in our culture is not the real thing. But in digging into the original language of Scripture here in the Greek language, we find that the word image means exactly the opposite in the original language. It's a Greek word. It's the word icon. It sounds the same as our word, but but spelled different. And here's what the word icon, which we get our word translated image here. Here's what it literally means. It says it, it brought with it the actual presence of the object. It's the very substance or essential embodiment of something or someone. You say, hey, great, great Greek lesson, right? Great, great fancy words. What does all that mean? What verse 15 really means is this, is that Jesus is the very embodiment or substance of God. That's exactly what verse 15 is teaching. You say, I don't necessarily agree with that. Listen, you may agree or disagree and that's yours to decide, but you cannot disagree that that's exactly what's being taught here on the pages of Scripture from the Apostle Paul. He says he's the icon, the very substance, the essence of God. And he say, Brad, are you you going to build your whole life on one little snippet of a verse among hundreds of thousands of chapters in the Bible? And you're going to let that one little verse there, you're going to let that guide all of your decisions and who you are and how you raise your kids and how you treat your wife and what you value and your eternal perspective on heaven and hell and all of those things. But see, it's just not one isolated passage in the scripture. It's repeated over and over and over that Jesus is the essence or the embodiment of God himself. I wrote down some other passages. You can write these down for reference. Look them up later. Hebrews chapter one, verse three says this. Jesus is described as the radiance of God's glory. Listen to this. The exact representation of his nature. Dead on. Dead ringers, what we would say. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four, in describing Jesus, it describes him the image. There's that word again, icon, essence, the image or essence of God. Philippians chapter two, verse six, probably the strongest statement that Jesus was God or the deity of Christ reads this way. It says being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So listen, you may say, I, I, you know, that's a couple of verses strewn together. Listen, the whole reason that the Jews want to stone him is because of blasphemy. It's because he got up and said, hey, I'm God. And they said, no, you're not. We're going to kill you. And so over and over again, the story of the Bible, Jesus is claiming to be God. Other people describing him as God. And there's a group of people rising up and saying, no, you're not. We're going to crucify you because of that. So here's another question. What is God like? You ever thought that question? We have lots of preconceived and presuppositions of what God's like. And some people think God's an angry tyrant just waiting to squash people. And he's angry and he's my life's a failure and God wants to squash me and all those kind of things. On the other end, that pendulum, some people look at God. The most common uh, description given by God when society's been pulled has been this is that God's a lot like Santa Claus. He's just happy. He's just bouncing kids on his knee. That's what God's doing. Maybe he's playing a harp. I don't know. Right. What is God like? Over the past 10 years, I've I've heard some wild answers. I've sat across from people and they've told me the straight face, this description of God, because it actually it fit who they wanted God to be or how it lined up with their values. Some of the funnest descriptions I I hear of God 
Are those stories where uh, kids write letters to God and they describe who God is and, and how God operates? I love some of those stories. I wrote some of them down. I heard some this week. Here's what it said. Kids writing letters to God. So kind of defining how they think God operates. A little boy named Peter said this. He said, dear God, this is a moment of transparency in his life. He said, dear God, please send Dennis Clark to a different summer camp this year. Thank you. Little boy named Larry said this, dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It works out well with me and my brother. Sign Larry. Little girl named Joyce said, God, thank you for the baby brother. But what I really asked for was a puppy. I never asked for anything before. You can look it up. One of these, right? A little transparency, maybe too much on this one. I love this one. Little girl named Anita wrote this. She said, Dear God, is it true my father won't get into heaven if he uses his golf words in the house, right? Some of you think, well, I sure hope so, right? I hope so. And those are some funny thoughts about how God operates. But in reality, sometimes we're, we're just as clueless. We, we, we just, you know, we, we kind of have this idea where we hope we know what God's like. And we hope God's this kind of sway. But in all honesty, if we just got really honest, we're kind of spitballing. I mean, it's not on the authority of Scripture. We're just out there going, well, you know, I heard he's like this or I hope he's like this, because if he is, then I'm OK. And if he's not, I'm not. And so this is kind of what I'm hoping for. Well, here's some good news to that question about what is God like, because I've got the answer this morning. The answer of what God is like is this. Here's the answer. God is just like Jesus. He's exactly like Jesus. I mean, think about it. If God were a man, what would you expect him to be like? I wrote down some things. I thought if, if God were a man, I would expect him to be sinless. And the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in all points, yet was without sin. And if God were a man, I would expect him to speak the most profound and greatest words ever spoken. It's exactly what Jesus did, so much to the point that 2,000 years later, we're still studying the words of Jesus. They were, they were that profound. If God were a man, I would expect him to do miracles, and Jesus did. And if God were a man, I would expect him to know the future, and Jesus did. And he made predictions that some of them were literally fulfilled to the hour, that there's no other explanation than he was God in the flesh. And I would expect God to be kind and compassionate, and Jesus was. Shortest verse in the Bible says this, Jesus wept. And I would expect God to be holy and experience righteous anger over sin. And the Bible says that Jesus wasn't. So any way you spin it, any way that you look at it, that if God were to come into the world as a man, he would come out exactly like Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you're kind of searching, you're wondering, you're on a spiritual journey and you say, you know what? I don't know what God's like. I don't know what he thinks about me. Hear me this morning. God is exactly like Jesus. Some people say, well, how could he be? How can he be the same? Because what on earth did he say things like this? Hey, I only do what the will of my father wants me to do. I only do what the father tells me to do. And so if he's in submission to God, well, then how can he be God? Listen, submission deals with activity, not with essence. Now, let me give you an easy illustration. Uh, my, my son is, is almost nine years old. He'll be nine years old next week. Uh, and, and, and in theory, he does what I tell him to do. OK, in theory. And in theory, I'm supposed to give direction and instruction, and he's supposed to obey those things. So he's submissive in activity. And so because he's submissive in activity, let me ask you a simple question this morning. Does that make him any less human in his essence? No one ever looks at my son and goes, oh, he's doing what his dad said. He must be a robot. 
Now, I, sometimes I wish he was. All right. I'm just going to share that out there. Right. No, it's about his activity, not about his essence. And some people say, I just can't think of this, this, this thing that God is. Jesus is God. He's eternal and all those kind of things. And some phrases like this, this trip us up in Scripture. Look at verse 15 again. He says he's the image of the invisible God, the exact representation, the same nature, same essence is what image means. But then it goes on. This is a little confusing. He says he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, I want you to put your thinking cap on. How can he be firstborn and be eternal? I mean, if that's a literal meaning, then how could Jesus be eternal and still be the firstborn? Well, listen, when you dig into the pages of Scripture, you see that phrase firstborn. It's not referring to a point in time. It's referring to a title of supremacy. Let me give you some examples to back that up. Exodus chapter four, verse 22. Israel was described as God's firstborn. Now, you don't have to be a history major to know this. Israel is not the first people group on the planet. So what does that mean? It means they were supreme or God's chosen people, firstborn, supreme in his eyes. Psalm eighty nine twenty seven, a prophetic psalm about Jesus says this. I will also make him firstborn. There's that word again. And then he describes it. The highest of the kings on the earth, supreme. Hebrews chapter one, verse six, it says, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. Why? Because he is supreme. Rats, one verse, you get a little stirred up one verse. Let's keep going. Verse 16. He just keeps driving at home that Jesus is the eternal God. Verse 16, for by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Now, if you have any knowledge of the New Testament, those are words there that describe different ranks of angels. And so we, we live in a culture that got really excited about angels. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, several years ago in the mid 90s, there was this obsession with angels and angel trinkets and angel stuffed animals were at an all time high. There was a country song called Angels Among Us. Lift your hand if you want me to sing that right now. Would you just would you just no one or I'll just go on. Look, there's a country. <laughs> oh, uh, no, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> there were angels among us. There was a television program, remember this, called Touched by an Angel. There were even angels in the outfield. Apparently, they didn't play for the Reds, but for some other teams, there were angels in the outfield. And some people were praying to angels and worshiping angels. And listen, there's nothing wrong with holding angels in high esteem as one of God's created messengers. But look at verse 16 when it gives that description. And it says that he will he was above all of these things, principalities and powers and all of those things. Basically, what he's saying in a paraphrase is this. If I could paraphrase verse 16, angels are neat, but Jesus is supreme. That's what he's describing there. He says they're lower than Jesus. He is the supreme one. And you say, well, you know what? I, listen, OK, it's two verses. I mean, I get that he says he's the image or the exact essence of God. I, I get that. I can't argue with that. I get that he's saying that, that angels, while as neat as they are, that Jesus Christ is supreme in rank over all of them. I, I, I get that. But I don't know that, 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 that that's two verses. Let's keep going. Verse 17. And he is before all things. You know what that means? He is the pre-existing, eternally existing Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity. He is before all things. Why? Because he's God. 
And you say, well, that's Paul's position. Okay, we just walk through verse by verse, by word by word. I get it. Paul's he's clear. I get it. You're teaching right from the scripture. I get it. But I don't think that Jesus ever said that about himself. I mean, I mean, who, who would say that about themselves? John chapter 17, verse five says this. Jesus is speaking. Here's what he says. And now, O father, glorify me together with yourself. Listen to this. With the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 9, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And so you can disagree about the divine origin of Scripture. And you say, I don't, I don't think the Bible's divine or those kinds of things. But you cannot with integrity uh, disagree with the fact that over and over and over again in the Bible, the Bible paints Jesus Christ as God in the flesh, eternally existing because Jesus is God according to the Scriptures. And some people say, I just can't wrap my mind around that. He existed eternally. And some people that frustrates them so much that they just kind of cast this whole idea of God to the side. Well, I can't, you know, eternally existing. But listen, we are finite human beings. We exist within the realm of time and space. God is transcendent. He transcends time and space. And so it's never meant for you to wrap your arms around you with this little formula. Oh, this is how it works. And, and this is how God is. And, all this, and I've got this formula and I've got this all figured out. And, 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 and if I can't figure it out, then I'm just going to dismiss the whole notion that there is a God. Listen, don't let the fact that you can't figure out God easy and quickly frustrate you. Let it motivate you to worship that he is bigger than you. That he can't, that he's so far beyond you, you can't even comprehend it. And when you think of that, a God who is so big that you can't describe, think, think about this, let this overwhelm you. That same God that spoke everything into existence, that transcendent God who's bigger than time and space, that big God that you can't explain, he wants a personal relationship with you. You see, that's a whole different spin, because if he's not bigger than me, then he's not worthy of my worship. And some people say, well, I just I want this formula. I want to figure it out. I want to I want to put it down. I want to you know, put it all together. And here's the formula. This is how it all works. Listen, that's not a God who's worthy of your worship. You know what that is? That's a science fair project. And you can take that God that you can build and figure out and construct and you can put it right on the table to science fair next to the paper mache volcano that explodes when you put vinegar and baking soda in that. You remember that? Which, by the way, is the greatest science experiment ever. Amen. You're a kid. We were in school. He brought this to school and, and this kids had all these you know, geeky gadgets and uh, stuff that obviously their dad had made. You know, it was obvious. They were just showing it off like, look what I made. You're a liar. Your dad made that. Here comes this kid with this board, paper mache volcano, a little baking soda, a little vinegar, a little red dye. I mean, everybody hovering around, do it again. Right. And you say, well, I want, I want a God that I can figure out. Listen, that's not a God that's worthy of your worship. So Paul clearly paints the picture over and over and over again in Scripture about who is Jesus. Listen, he is the eternal God. So verse 15 and 17 clearly state that so it should come as no surprise that Jesus is not your co-pilot either. Now, I know that's a popular bumper sticker. And uh, some of you, some of you are just panicked right now. Going, oh, he knows. He knows. He knows. <laughs> it's on your car. Listen, I don't know. All right. But I have asked the ushers to go outside in the parking lot and mark your cars. That, no, I'm just kidding. 
Jesus isn't, despite the bumper sticker theology, Jesus isn't interested in being your co-pilot. But frankly, that's the version of Jesus that we like, do we not? Where he's kind of there and, and uh, he, we're operating as a team, but, but, but I'm in the driver's seat. I'm, I'm doing this. I'm, I'm kind of steering the ship. But Jesus is there as my co-pilot. And as a co-pilot, uh, it's his responsibility to let me know if I'm in danger, right? But that if I'm going to you know, pull out in traffic, or I'm going to get in a big, some kind of live collision. Then, hey, Jesus, you're my co-pilot. You need to warn me of that. But other than that, no one likes a backseat driver, Jesus. So you just stay back there and just kind of keep it quiet. The version of Jesus, the best way I can think of it, uh, sometimes we want Jesus to operate is this. Now, uh, I remember when I was in driver's ed and uh, some of some of you that, that may have been a, a little longer, a little while ago and uh, dri- driver's ed. And I didn't know this, but when you got in the car, uh, they just didn't let you just have free reign on the road, did they? And so because next to you was the instructor and what the instructor had that I didn't realize was she had her own set of pedals, brake pedals on her side. And so you would think that you were taking, I just, I remember pulling out of the intersection, hitting the gas, like, mm, what the hell, did I hit someone? She said, no, I, I, I stopped you, you're getting ready to pull out in front of traffic. And I got all indignant, I, I mean, I've been driving for seven minutes at that point in my whole life, right? Are you, oh, I was totally fine. Finally, after about 40 times, I just thought, you know what, I'm going to get my license, I'm just going to shut up. She just kept hitting the pedal, hitting the pedal, hitting the pedal. That's the version of Jesus we like. Hey, listen, I'm, I'm steering the ship. But if I'm going to pull out and get in a collision, some big train wreck, hit the brakes, man. But other than that, that's it. Remember a few years ago, this idea that Jesus and I are kind of on equal footing and all these kind of things. Someone's biscuits are burning right now. I just I hear that alarm going off right now. Don't answer that. That's the devil trying to get your attention. If that's your phone. All right. I sure hope whoever that was doesn't have a Jesus is my co-pilot bumper sticker because God would be angry. Amen. I do know this was they're never coming back and they hate me right now. But (laughs) that was a snort. That was embarrassing. There was a. Listen, I remember a few years ago, this, this whole idea that Jesus and I are kind of on equal footing. My wife wants to crawl into the chair. She's so, so, so ashamed. I only had tangerine pants on. But there was a couple years ago, uh, this, this whole idea that Jesus and I are kind of team players. And, and I'm calling the shots, but he's there to hit the brakes and just in case things go bad. Uh, there was a shirt that came out. I don't know if you remember this or not. You see it in magazines and celebrities were wearing this shirt around kind of the same idea, but different terminology. And they'd wear a shirt that said this. Jesus is my homeboy. Really? Let's see what the scripture describes him as in the title that it gives to him. In first Colossians chapter one, verse 18. Is he a co-pilot? Is he a homeboy? Look at verse 18. It says that he is the head of the body, the church. So some of you come, maybe this is your first time here. You're thinking, who, who runs this joint, right? If we get it right, Jesus Christ is in charge. And that everything we do has to line up with him and his teachings and his authority as God in the flesh. That's who runs this joint. All right. And he goes on in verse 18 and says, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, what does that mean? He's talking about the resurrection. Firstborn of the dead. And you say, well, I'm not a Bible scholar, but but how can he be the firstborn of the dead? Because in the Old Testament, then they raised people from the dead and 
And I haven't read the Bible a whole lot, but didn't, didn't Jesus raise people from the dead too? So how is he the firstborn of the dead? Remember that phrase, firstborn? It's not talking about chronology, it's talking about supremacy. And so he is the supreme one that has been resurrected. Why? Because when he was resurrected, that was God putting his stamp on Jesus Christ saying, you alone have satisfied my payment for sin approved. What else is it going to say in verse 18? He's the firstborn from the dead. He's supreme in, in regards to those who have been resurrected. Why? That in all things he may have the preeminence. You see, he's not a co-pilot and he's not your homeboy. He's the preeminent son of God, eternal God in the flesh is how Colossians chapter one describes him here. And so we walk through this passage and realize that, that in all these things, these statements, do you realize this in all these things, verses 15 through 19, all these are unique statements about Jesus Christ alone that we cannot make about anyone else. Let me walk you through this. Colossians chapter one, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. No one else. He is the firstborn or supreme over all creation. Unique title to Jesus. By him, all things were created that are in heaven, on earth. Everything you see and can't see. He alone is created in that. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things consist. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why? That in all things he may have the preeminence for it. Please the father that in him, not in Muhammad, not in Buddha, not in anybody else in him, the fullness of God should dwell. And so verses 15 through 19 say very clearly Jesus is unique or another way to paraphrase it. There's no one like my Jesus. Amen. not your co-pilot. He's not your homeboy. He is the one that the eternal God in verse 18 says, because of that, he alone deserves the preeminence. Now, we agree with that theology. And I just walked you through verse by verse by verse by verse of why I think that's true. The Bible teaches that. But the question is not whether we agree with it theologically. The question is, does our life reflect it practically? Oh, you think Jesus was son of God? Oh, amen. See, preeminent? Amen. See, head of the church? Amen. By him, all things are created? Amen. Holds all things together? Amen. Better than the angels? Amen. Does it make a difference in your life? Is the only question that really matters, isn't it? You see, Jesus is God, whether you agree with it or not. The only question is, has that truth shown up in your life practically? Or are you still calling the shots and hoping Jesus is there to hit the brakes before you get into a train wreck in life? So are we interested in the Jesus who can make sure we go to heaven when we die or the interest in the biblical Jesus who's to have verse 18 preeminence in all things? Jesus is the eternal God. He's not your co-pilot. And lastly, Jesus is the bridge between you and God. He's the bridge between you and God. Now, I'm going to walk you through some truth. It's a little uncomfortable. Frankly, it's a little unpopular, but it's truth nonetheless. And the Bible says in John 8, 32, that the truth will set you free. OK, so walk with me through this. When it comes to verses 15 through 19, we answer the question of who Jesus is. But when we get to verse 20, it answers the question not of who, but of why. Look at verse 20, Colossians 1. It says, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. Verse 20 uses the word reconcile. 
talking about what Jesus does between us and God. Reconcile. The word reconcile, literally, when you look up the meaning, it means to exchange hostility for friendship. This word gets a little unpopular. You see the picture that Paul is painting? He's saying that apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, God and I have some irreconcilable differences. That's what when, it, when a marriage doesn't work out, we say there was a relational barrier there. They couldn't work it out. It was irreconcilable differences. Paul's saying, listen, apart from Jesus Christ, you're standing before a holy God with some irreconcilable differences. You say, well, I, don't, I don't like that. Can I share you this morning that no one gets saved until they first off admit and discover they're lost and separate from the holiness of God? He said, I, I, don't, I don't know if I like that. Keep reading. He says, and by him to reconcile, remove the barrier between a holy God and sinful man, reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. In other words, everything needs to be reconciled to God. And then listen to this. Having made peace. How? Through the blood of his cross. Now, the opposite of peace is what? It's war. And so in verses 15 through 19, he tells me who Jesus is. In verse 20, he tells me why. And you know what he says? He says, because there's a barrier between a holy God and a sinful man that Jesus Christ alone can reconcile or remove that barrier. That when I reject Jesus Christ as God's gift of salvation, then guess what? I'm standing at God and saying, no, thanks that I'm at war with God's offer. And that the only thing that can produce peace when I'm at war with God is what does verse 20 say through his what cross. And you say, why? Well, I, I listen that I'm a good person. And I believe that there's a good God who lives in a good place and good people go there when they die. Let me just press down on that just a little bit this morning. How good do you have to be? I don't know. What hopes in that? What about this? Who decides what's good? Because if we went around and took a poll, we'd all have a different standard. So whose standard's right? I don't know. And what about if you got to heaven and the grade to get in was an 85 and you stood before God and God looks up the scroll of, of your good works and your good deeds and God goes, oh, bummer, 84. <clears throat> Trap door opens. Or, uh, it, you get the picture, right? Is that a loving God? Now, listen, a relationship with Jesus Christ is the, is the way the Father is what verse 20 says. You so I don't think that's fair that no one can get to heaven outside of Jesus Christ. But let me push back on that. What could be fairer? The way is clear. Everyone's welcome and everyone gets in the same way. What could be fairer in life? Regrettably, in, in evangelical circles over the last couple of decades, when salvation is talked about in terms, uh, it's not the same content of what the Bible teaches about the gospel. And here's what we hear today. Come to Jesus and, and have a better marriage or or come to Jesus and he'll solve all of your economic and emotional problems. Now, I think those are an overflow of relationship. But hear me this morning. None of those statements is the biblical picture of the gospel. Think about it. I mean, if Jesus just came to solve all of our problems, then wouldn't he have been a whole lot more helpful if he didn't go to the cross? I mean, could he start up a 12 step group or some kind of support network? So why do you have to go to the cross? It's because here's the gospel is he had to go to the cross to reconcile or remove the barrier between sinful humanity 
and a holy God. You see, that's the gospel. That God, when he talks about salvation, it's delivering people from the wrath of God against sin. And so despite what you've heard, hear me this morning. Jesus did not come to save people from a lack of purpose or lack of happiness or the demands of a stress-filled life. The reality is this morning is the unpopular truth is that God gave Jesus to save us from the eternal wrath of God because of our unforgiven sin. But if we're honest this morning, the Jesus died to solve all your problems is a lot more marketable, isn't it? I mean, listen, it's hard to put butts in the seats getting up and saying, hey, God wants to save people from wrath. I don't like that. But whether we like it or not, it's the real gospel. Listen, to Romans chapter five. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners. What's that mean? It means you're not perfect. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified or made right, how? By his blood, we shall be saved from what? Here it is, here's salvation. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled, there's that word, to God, how? Through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved, how? By being a good person, we shall be saved by his Life. That's Romans chapter five, verses eight through ten, if you want to write it down. Now, hear me this morning. We're going to be done. I don't know if those truths that I just walked through are popular. But here's what I do know. It's those truths and that gospel, the real gospel. That will give you peace with God. And can I tell you this morning, I don't know everyone here this morning. And there's some things I don't know about you. I don't know where you went to school. I don't know where you live. I don't know how much money you make. I don't know what your career is. I don't know what you like. I don't know who your favorite teams are. I don't know what your favorite food is. Let me tell you something I do know about every person in the room this morning. Here's what I know about every person in the room this morning. That a hundred years from now, the only thing that will matter in your life is whether or not you have peace with God on his terms. And we've got three-year plans, and we've got five-year plans. But if you could just hit the fast-forward button, let me ask you a question. What's your hundred-year plan? The only thing that matters is whether we have peace with God. And what does verse 20 say? How is that achieved? Through the cross. Let me wrap this thing up. This morning, every person in here walked in with a belief about Jesus, kind of on a continuum. Some people say he never existed. I've met people like that. He's the most verifiably documented figure in all of human history. To say Jesus didn't exist is like saying, I, don't, I choose not to believe in Abraham Lincoln. He's that documented. But I've heard people say that. And some people say, well, I, I don't, you know, I, I believe he existed, but I think he was an effective leader. Because leadership is influence. Listen, if leadership is influence, and that's how we grade people, then a lot of people followed Hitler in a wrong and sinful way. So that doesn't do us a whole lot of good, does it? I think he was a good teacher. I mean, just some profound truths, love your neighbor, all this, right? Or I think he was a good moral example. I mean, listen, when you talk about being a good person, you've got to be like Jesus. And some people walk in and say, hey, listen, I think he's the eternal God, and I've committed my whole life to him. Can I tell you that if you're on any, any end of this spectrum, that when you walk through the Scriptures with integrity, 
you can't say that Jesus was an effective leader or a good teacher when he claimed to be God if he was lying, can you? Oh, I think his message was completely false because a great moral example. It doesn't hold water, does it? You see, Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. And so either he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is Lord. And can I tell you this morning, the only position the Word of God gives us, the only option, is that he's Lord. And there's no question about that. But the only question that remains is whether or not you've accepted him as Savior and Lord. Don't follow a liar around. Don't waste your life following a lunatic. But I'm begging you this morning to commit your life to the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, this Easter, 2012. I invite you to bow your heads this morning.